Welcome to the Marshall Pruitt Podcast and your Week in Sports Cars interview show. This almost could have been a Week in IndyCar interview show, knowing how good this guy is. We're talking to our friend John Edwards. Say a big thanks, John, as always, to our partners at Cooper Tires and the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com and Discount Tire. Take great care of us here on the show. And I guess the news is out. As I have written, and I don't know if it's craftily written, but I tried to at least come up with an opening uh, paragraph that was amusing for a story here. John Edwards has called time on his career as a professional race car driver. That might be wrong, so you'll have to correct me if you're still (laughs) going to do this. Sneak out there. The 2008 Star Mazda and 2009 Atlantic Championship title winner will trade the use of inverted wings in cockpits to race on the ground for cockpits and wings used for flight. And you want to become a pilot. You've already been a pilot, but in a professional capacity. And I figure we should start there, John, and then maybe we'll go back a little bit and talk about some of the great highlights of your career. But how did you get here? And will I never see you at a racetrack again? Come on, man. Well, first of all, thanks for having me on. Um, I guess it took... took uh, stepping away from motorsport for uh to finally earn an invite onto the show but happy to be here either way <laughs> dude we've and, done uh, <laughs> so many things over the years come on but uh, you you raise uh, a great point and i, I suck. had to give you a hard time no but, i suck uh, i and, suck you know bravo on the title i i love the uh i love the inverted wings title i think you should stick with that if you do any print articles about it but um yeah it's it's uh it's an interesting time in my life you know i um i've raced my whole life since i was eight years old and um you know starting go-karts was um, just kind of father son bonding at the beginning and never dreamed that it would evolve into what it was. Um, but you know, as you get, as you get through life, um, you start to look at what's, you know, what's next and what's the, the future hold. And I think every driver in the back of our minds, um, you know, we wonder what we're going to do post driving because ultimately, um, unless you're making the, uh, the formula one, salaries of uh you know tens of millions of dollars um you know we're gonna have to still work after we're done driving essentially so it's always been in the back of my mind as it is for everybody um you know a lot of guys obviously go on to announce or go on to do a lot of coaching or you know some guys obviously um find a an am guy and and keep their driving career going a little bit longer um you know even once they're done with some factory stuff but for me i've always had a or I shouldn't say always, but since the first year of my BMW career, uh, I found a passion for flying. And so, um, it really paid off well because I was able to use my travel budget to build hours and, and get my time by flying myself to all the races. I had a a little Cirrus, a little prop plane. And so I got about 13 or 1400 hours, um, by, I guess it was October or November of last year. And as I started to kind of plan my future, um, you know, I, I had a contract through this year with BMW and, and, um, as you get through that, that final year of a contract, you know, you always start talking about what's next. And so I had to think about that and, and, um, kind of reckon with myself on, on what I wanted from my driving career and whether it was time to, to make the step. And ultimately it, it happened a lot sooner than I really expected it to happen, you know, something that was in the back of my mind for a few years, but 
um, I really thought that I would take driving as far as I could take it and, and have to get, you know, kicked out involuntarily, um, to, to finally make the transition just because it's been such a big part of my life. But ultimately, um, you know, at this point there's a huge pilot shortage and pilot salaries are going up and the, the time to start as a pilot, if you have your hours is, is, has never been better. And, you know, you can never, you've never been able to say that about race car driving because there's just way more drivers than there are seats. And so you're always fighting tooth and nail to earn your spot, keep your spot. Um, you know, and I've, I've seen the good and the bad sides of that. I've, I've been very lucky in my career to be in the right place at the right time, but I've also seen, um, seen a lot of guys lose rides mid season. I've seen, um, you know, I've seen my program get cut for reasons out of my control. I've seen, you know, I've seen myself get dropped from the Red Bull program for reasons that were certainly within my control when I didn't perform. Um, so I've seen all, all the good and bad of it. And ultimately, as I looked into the future, you know, I just had a daughter. Um, I've got a really, uh, really happy life with a family now. And um, as we started kind of planning our future, decided now's, now's the time to make the, make the step over. And um, the only thing I'll clarify from your comments, Marshall, is, is that um, I've been very careful not to mention the word retirement because uh, to me, even the guys that say they retire, you suddenly see pop back up occasionally. Um, so, you know, I'm someone who is making a decision that, that I'm very comfortable with and I'm confident uh, that I'm going to be happy with, with what I've decided, but I still love driving race cars. I mean, you can't say that it's not a good time, right? So I would love the opportunity to step back in and, and help, help a team out at Daytona um, or even a full endurance season in the future if the schedule, you know, lined up for me. Um, and that time might not be now. It might be a ways down the road, but I still love driving race cars and I'd, I'd welcome any opportunity to, uh, to step back in in the future. I don't think Terrell Owens has caught a pass in the NFL in like 20 years, but that guy is constantly trying to find a way back in at like age 50 <laughs> or whatever. And, you know, again, I'm sure my numbers are off a little bit, but like point taken of like, look, your God-given talent, which has always been outrageous, that hasn't gone away. This isn't the, eh, lost a step market's really full all these young punks who just do the the gym tan sim life and nothing else you know too many of those to keep fighting off so i'll just i'll do this now i love i love the fact that at 32 right you're still a young guy and i'm not saying you haven't you know taken some lumps over the years every race car driver with a long career has had some crashes and some injuries but you know you're not all busted up with with half a knee left and a you know your back <laughs> fall like you're in great shape you're young you have a name and reputation that is at the highest level and you are deciding this is what is best for you I know the answer to this question, but I'll ask it anyways. Do you realize, John, how rare it is? Factory driver, decade <laughs> with BMW, done all these amazing things, and you are getting to choose the terms of how at least this first long chapter of your racing career comes to an end. And again, we might have you back in a couple months at wherever else, but 
Are you aware of how rare this is, brother? Because, boy, you and I know a lot of folks who are hanging on well past their best days uh, and are clinging for any way to scrape an income through you making this call. (laughs) I love everything about it because you own it. Yeah, and I do do realize how rare it is, and I think that's why, um, you know, candidly, my wife was probably sick of me bringing it up when we were having these discussions because, uh, you know, she's the person whose opinion I respect the most and she's the person who's going to have to live with me. Um, if I'm unhappy with the decision I've made, um, for, for myself and for our family. So, uh, you know, at one point I remember we went, we went for a walk and I started talking to, okay, well, you know, if I did this and I did, and she was like, please, how many times are we going to have this conversation? Just do it already. <laughs> you know, you, you, you've talked to yourself, in and out of it a million times and you just keep trying to justify it for your own self, for your own mind. Um, and, and I think that's why once I, once I made that decision and, and especially now that the news has come out, um, you know, she actually asked me last night, I was getting a a ton of messages and she was kind of reminiscing, posting some old photos, you know, from her, her first time coming to a race of mine. And, um, you know, a bunch of people were posting things and, and sending me stuff. And, um, she said, are you, she said, I'm kind of sad now. I, I know that you're happy and this is your decision, but aren't you a little sad? And I, I was like, not at all. She was like, do you, do you just not ever feel anything? I said, no, I just am confident in my decision. I, I know, you know, we've talked through this and I think that it, it's not, it's not difficult for me because I'm not leaving to, uh, you know, to go sit at a desk and, um, and, and slog through something that I hate, um, that I hate doing because I can't imagine working a desk job. And I, frankly, when I was 21 or 22, before I signed my, I guess 20 or 21, before I signed my BMW contract and I was still driving for Stevenson and it was a private team and you never know that what the future holds in, in that environment. I, I was a little panicked at that point because I had no idea what I would do if I wasn't driving. Um, but at that point I had never taken a flight lesson and, um, I'd never really considered that as an option for a career. So, um, you know, now, now that I'm able to start somewhere that is, uh, that is a really cool place to fly. I'm, I'm flying at NetJets now. And so they fly really cool planes. We get really cool trips, great destinations, a huge variety of flying. We fly into big airports, we fly into small airports. And so I'm, I'm excited about that aspect of things. And, um, and so I'm really just looking forward. And I think, I think it's, you know, I know it's rare and I think, um, I wasn't really sure if there was going to be a big hoopla about it. I've never been the, you know, the hoopla guy, um, about my own stuff anyway. So I wasn't really sure if there was going to be, um, you know, much talk about it. And the response yesterday when the article came out, or I guess uh, two nights ago when the article came out and then all through the day yesterday, um, I had a ton of messages and calls and, um, and it kind of made me realize, to your point, how rare it is and how shocked everyone was. So, you know, there's a handful of people that obviously already knew. Um, but to those that hadn't heard, I think everybody just expected, you know, I'd be in a GTD car or, you know, back in SRO or something like that. And so, um, I think it, uh, I think it came as a huge surprise to everybody. And that, that helped me realize how, just, just how, uh, how rare it is. I got to mention something here because my brain had something stuck in it. So I don't know exactly what episode number this is going to be when it goes up. My most recent was episode 1,458. So this will be 459 or 460. But I had to, I had to 
look it up. <laughs> OG John Edwards, episode 86. Oh, you were within the first no. 100. John Edwards on his first BMW DTM test. Oh, man. Right from December 10th. So this is almost however many days to the I year. Wasn't, I wasn't counting on you having receipts. Uh, it's okay. Look, it's fair <laughs> enough. I suck. We know that. But uh, December 10, 2016. So you were within my first 100 podcast, dude. So there you go. There's affirmation oh, that's funny. of the well, longstanding love. That's a great memory. That was one of the coolest cars I got to drive. So that was a, that was a fun day. So... Well. We're not farewelling you from the sport, thankfully. What are you getting to fly, by the way? You mentioned net jets, but I don't know if we're talking seven, seven, sevens, or, or are you getting to fly big stuff, fun stuff, smaller jets? Uh, what? Uh, definitely, definitely fun stuff. I'm flying a Citation Latitude, and um, so I, I know this is a racing podcast, but the avionics on that plane are incredible. Um, you know, lot, lots of screens, lots of uh, gadgets inside, and you know, we basically go about the same speed as a as a commercial flight. Um, but, uh, you know, it only holds six people comfortably and eight people if you, um, if you use the, the couple extra seats. So, um, small, small crowds on the plane. Usually it's, I think on average we have, um, under, under two people, like it's a 1.8 average or something like that. Um, so occasionally we'll fill the plane, but usually it's just one or two people that are flying. And, um, yeah, like I said, we're, we're going all over. We fly up high, we fly 45,000 feet quite a bit and um we'll do we'll do everything from you know cross-country flights from california to to new york or uh yesterday i went from washington dc out to las vegas and um you know we'll do we'll do it all but then we'll also reposition um you know from one airport to another for a, a six minute flight that gets that gets really uh really busy in the cockpit so um we kind of get to get to taste it all and and it's a really fun time the other thing that I love here is, so I've been doing this since I was 16. Um, I don't know. Uh, we're not too far away from that being like, I'm a couple years away from it being 40 years of my life doing this. And the one thing that I wish I could make disappear is the travel part. Oh my God, airports and TSA. And I, I realize as a pilot, you might have kind of the, the executive pass in a lot of places, but I love the fact that the one thing you ask most racers who have busy schedules that they just hate uh, and saps their energy, it's the travel and flying. So what does Edwards do? Oh yeah, I'm going to make it my, uh, my new profession here. But I guess the cool part and the other thing, which again, wears on you after many years in motor racing is, you know, I'm, I'm already thinking about the upcoming roar before the 24 and Rolex 24. So those are now back to back weekends, which means you'll fly in on a Wednesday or whatever. And since I live all the way on the other side of the country, I'm not going to go back and then fly right. back. I'll stay out. So I'm already thinking about this 10, 12, 13 day long trip and it wears on you after a full season as you know john your loved ones are like geez are you home i know you're here physically but are you here mentally because you got to turn right Definitely. back around a couple days even though you're going from washington to las vegas to here or wherever it sounds like you're getting a lot more opportunities to earn a living yet sleep in your own bed maybe more on a more frequent basis than uh when you're a full-time racer yeah so um 
I, and look, I mean, this isn't the reason I chose to do it, but I think it is a, a positive of, of the switch. Um, as you said, it, it really wears on you. I think Daytona, um, you know, everybody used to complain that it was right after New Year's, so you couldn't really enjoy Christmas and New Year's, especially the crews were just overloaded, um, you know, working through the holidays. And um, a lot of times we're having to travel on, on January 1st. And then so the, the answer really for the logistics was to move it to back to back weekends. And that just made the whole week even longer, as you as you point out. So, um, you know, I think for me as a driver, having to prepare for that stuff and, you know, I mean, not just, you know, you got to stay fit physically, mentally, you got to be ready, you got to recharge and you got to be ready to attack and really perform at your, your body's limit and the, um, and the car's limit. And that takes a lot out of you. And I, you know, I've been doing that my whole life. Um, but it, it really, you, you put a lot on yourself in all of those situations. Um, you know, I, I say that every race weekend you go to and, more than Daytona, you know, for me in the, in the spring and, and summer, that's when I would get really busy because we were doing Nürburgring, we were doing, um, IMSA and we were testing and, and everything would just sort of line up right together. And it's certainly not a complaint, you know, for, for me to say that I, Oh, they forced me to go do Nürburgring. That was the most fun I would have all year was racing at the ring. Um, but the travel, as you point out, takes a huge toll on you. And so for me now making the switch to flying, uh, NetJets is pretty cool. Unlike airlines, you can choose to be on a, a seven and seven schedule or an eight and six schedule. So, you know, you can work for seven days and your work starts as soon as you leave your house and your work ends when you get home. So that includes the, you know, the travel time it takes to get to wherever your jet is for that week. Um, so I'll leave the house. I'll be gone for seven days and then I'm home for seven days. And in those seven days that I'm home, um, I'm not thinking about flying. I'm not stressing about what am I going to do next week because that's scheduling's problem. They're, they're going to figure it all out. You know, that's, that's somebody else. And I don't have to worry when I show up to work, you know, how am I going to perform mentally? I mean, I say that, of course you have to, as a pilot, be on top of your mental game, but you, you know, you're not being measured in terms of uh, two tenths of a second, you know, and if you're two or three tenths off in qualifying, you're disappointed. And if you're five or six tenths off, you lose your job, you know? So if we land, if we land half a second late, uh, the passengers in the back don't notice <laughs> at this point. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really interesting for me to start flying and, and be able to do something that I enjoy, something that takes some serious focus when you're in critical phases of flight, but there's not that pressure to perform it at your absolute limit all the time. This is um, so, so fascinating, I can come home. John. This is so <laughs> fascinating. No, I mean it. You know, I can, but I can come home and we have a three month old uh, baby at home, so I can come home and you know, I throw my work phone in, in the bag and, and, uh, lock it in the closet. Cause I don't need to look at it till the next time I go out. So, um, you know, when you're, when you're in motorsport, I mean, I had, I had a personal trainer, um, you know, I use, use pit fit up in Cornelius and, um, you'd be in there two or three times a week. You'd be biking on your own time and you'd be, you know, always thinking about what went wrong the last weekend and how you were going to be better. Um, you know, how, how was the team going to be better and how could you help them achieve that? Um, you know, it, it, it takes a lot out of you, just sort of the, the worrying as well as the preparation. And so, uh, it's been kind of a, an interesting change of pace for me to be on a cadence, you know, and, and if we started, you know, talking about the schedule, just one last point on that is like in the spring, I would be gone 10 or 12 weekends in a row and I might come home for two or three days or 
almost always would come home two or three days in the middle, but then you're back out for four or five days again. And so that time at home, you know, and you're preparing for that next event, whether it's writing reports on the last preparing for the next sleeping. Yeah. I mean, you know, if you did a 24, the 24 hours of spa or Nürburgring, and then you're on a flight home and you go straight to a test at Watkins Glen from the 24 hour, and then you come home for a few days and then you're going out to a race again. I I mean, sometimes you just got to sleep and, you know, you might have a a honey-do list to get done at home and, you know, you want to see your friends and you want to have a date night and you've only got two or three days to do it all. So, um, you know, something, something has to give in, in all of that. And, uh, and you ultimately just need your rest. So, um, at this point, you know, with flying, because I won't have these big breaks off in the winter, I will be gone more days, uh, or more nights, I should say, than I was racing, but it's all on a, on an even cadence, you know? So I'm just as busy in the, wintertime as I am in the summertime. And I think that's what, what really drained me personally and, and certainly what drained, uh, or, or what would drain, you know, my family, I think, um, in the future. So uh, it's nice, nice knowing that, you know, when I go out, I'm going to come home and I'm going to, I'm going to be able to enjoy my time at home as well. So again, less you know, guilt, it's, less it's, guilt it's, too. And definitely. I say that as someone who spent Again, most of his adult life on the road, like whether it's a girlfriend, your wife, your spouse, whatever, your spouse, your loved one, like you come home and you're like, okay, uh, I'm a terrible human being because (laughs) in order for me to do the thing that allows us to live and support us, I have to be selfish and I'm going to monitor that. But as you said, I'd love to repaint the, this and cut the grass. Like I got to sleep. Because if yeah. I can't do the thing that supports us, then I they don't let me have money anymore or a job. Exactly. So again, you're always in a war of like, I'm a terrible human being because I want to give you my love and time, but gosh, I have to be selfish otherwise. Again, it's yeah, and you want to you know you want you want to have those date nights and you want to spend time um, with the people that that you care about when you're home, but sometimes you just don't have the energy. Um, so. I, you know, and, and then the problem for me is that, that I'd come home for the winter time and from petite to Daytona, you might do one or two tests and I'd be going stir crazy. You know, it's like, it's like if you leave your phone plugged in for two months, it's still just going to be at a hundred percent, you know, it, you can't charge it to 500%. So I felt the same, you know, once I was home for two or three weeks, I'd be itching to go, you know, to go do something and, and, um, and, and have an objective, but, uh, you'd, you'd kind of sit around waiting and then all of a sudden you'd just be super busy. So again, I want to emphasize it's an interesting conversation and I know that you understand it, Marshall, but, um, it's certainly not the reason I chose to do what I'm doing. It's just, I would say, uh, uh, a little side, a little bonus for me that makes it a little bit easier. I want to get into another thing, which I think might be fascinating. So you have spent all these years becoming this hyper-focused athlete where your mental processing rate is at a Hertz number of a trillion compared to the average person. You are accustomed to judging space, time, distance. Uh, Things are happening at 200 miles an hour for you. You're placing vehicles within, uh, you know, seemingly an inch or millimeters of the same apex point lap after lap you're doing all of these things that require you to be just like warp speed mentally 
physically matching that with physical movements that are not only precise machine-like but super rapid i would think taking a john edwards and dropping him into the cockpit of a jet would be a miraculous marriage of pre-existing skills um tell me about that though because i also think john of like long-haul drivers in australia going from Eastern Australia to WA to Western Australia. And it's 20 zillion hours long of effectively going in a straight line, same exact landscape. And the number of fatalities there crazy because it's hours of droning monotony and seeing the same thing. And so part of me wonders for someone like you, who's used to being attuned to that mental processing rate at a million miles an hour and physical movements constantly and doing this for hours on end. What do you do with all that where getting a plane up and effectively somewhat still and a lot of probably clouds and the same (coughs) things to stare at? Has that been a a hindrance? Has your racing training been a a positive? Like where does that go? Because it seems so radically different than the immediacy of barreling into turn one start of the rolex 24 with 15 or 20 other crazy people around you and managing that immediacy well so it it's um it's sort of two different questions i think the first is uh motorsport and how does that prepare you for um the critical phases of flight which is what you go through in all of the training you know you never sit there and cruise uh in the sim you know with the autopilot on um they're throwing engine failures at you, they're throwing, you know, emergency checklists and emergency descents because the cabin depressurized and all that type of stuff in the sim. And I would say motorsport <laughs> is, is the best way to prepare for something like that aside from just being a pilot. Um, so that, that was a huge help. My experience with multitasking in the car, um, you know, being at the, at the limit and changing dials and doing things in the car if your strategy is changing and you're going to fuel save mode and you know okay now we need to push and you need to change this you know that that ability to think while driving um it's is i would say directly applicable to flying um so that part of it was was a big help the rest you're asking about being in cruise um you know to me or, or in a climb you know basically when you're on autopilot i think in australia uh you know the guy's driving a 20 zillion hours um they get bored they fall asleep or they they make a mistake because they're having to hold it just straight and steady you know we've got autopilot for that that part of the flight and the big the big thing for pilots when you're in that phase of flight with the autopilot on is knowing what you've programmed and recognizing when the plane's not doing what you want it to do so you're you're essentially in a modern a monitoring phase so that critical phase of flight where you're on the controls um is is a lot different than the sort of monitoring phase. And what I've told people about flying and the reason I love it so much is that it, it, although there's some short intervals where you have to be really on your game, you're communicating with your partner. There's a lot of call outs. There's a lot of things to do, um, on taxi out and takeoff and then on landing and, um, you know, approach, especially in the clouds and, uh, and at busy airports and then down to landing. Um, there's, there's a lot to do in the cockpit, and that's spread out by long phases of, you know, what you're, what you're describing as boredom. And the answer is, you know, I'll get up and make an espresso in the back. Um, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, 
it, you're you're able to uh, to rely on your partner because in those less less critical phases of flight, you know, you can get up and have just one one pilot in the cockpit, as I'm sure you've seen on commercial flights when they they get up and swap and things like that. So, um, yeah, it's it's sometimes on a long flight, five and a half hours. Sometimes it's a little bit boring, but um, you know, then you then you come over the the mountains and you see the snow on the Rockies for the, after the first snow of the year. And, um, you know, that's what we had last night coming into Vegas over the Rockies and it was just beautiful. So I, I really enjoy the views and I, I tell people, I describe, I describe, um, flying for me is a lot more like the mindset is a lot more like scuba diving where control your breathing, stay calm, you're doing stuff and you're looking at stuff and you have to take action and, and do things, but you're not at the physical limit you're not overloaded and oversaturated, um, at, at, you know, at least in the non critical phases of flight. So for me, it's a much more of a Zen activity than motorsport. It's definitely not the adrenaline kick, uh, that you get at a, a 4am restart at Daytona for sure. Last couple things, John, then we'll, uh, let you, let you go. So lots of interest, I would imagine, uh, as folks are learning about this, this change in career path for you, I know that there are some drivers, whether it's sports cars, NASCAR, IndyCar fans of, uh, flying the good old airplanes. I know Alexander Rossi, uh, is one that comes to mind. How many have you heard from, uh, whether they just learned about it here this week or maybe knew about it before, but. What have you heard from uh, some some fellow drivers, or who knows, maybe former team owners, about this change? Well, I've gotten a, a ton of messages. I, I haven't even had a chance to open um, some of them, and, and certainly haven't responded to all of them. But um, we'll do my best to do so. But uh, yeah, I got a call from uh, from Bobby Rahal that was uh, I, I unfortunately missed his call, but he left a very um, kind message. I've gotten a ton of really nice messages from old teammates and things. Um, you know, some couple of which knew I was, uh, knew I was doing it, but, you know, we're happy to see that it was, the news was out and a few that, that hadn't heard, um, asking for the hookup too, and, uh, (laughs) the discount code. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Um, yeah, unfortunately I can't even get my sister on the, uh, on the ferry flights and she's not very happy about it. So, um, (laughs) that can't, uh, can't go very far outside the family, but, um, but yeah, it it had a ton of, had a ton of messages and, and kind words. I know I've inspired a few people to get their pilot's license. I know um, uh, Kenton Cook, and I've been in touch a lot. He just got his commercial rating. Um, he's got uh, got a Bonanza, and I know uh, Kuno Whitmer um, got his license because of me. So um, take credit for for quite a few drivers uh, catching the bug and, and kind of doing the same thing. And um, it's been it's been cool to get all the messages. So uh, it's much appreciated for sure. So again, we're not saying you're never going to do race car driving again, but why don't we at least do a little bit of reflection before saying farewell to this episode, John. So I got to know you when you were coming up the junior open wheel ladder, that star Mazda title, then a really intense season uh, where you went on to win the Atlantic Championship yourself, fighting against Jonathan Summerton. Simone Di Silvestro, Simone unfortunately getting taken out by uh, Marcus Niemlet, the corkscrew, I believe, the season finale. But there was a time where I was really convinced you were going to be one of the great young American IndyCar drivers, but you were one of a, a crop 
achieved your success at a time where we were reconciling things. The old IRL and Champ Car were merging and folks coming up uh, winning Atlantic championships weren't necessarily being looked at as the number one option for IndyCar teams. What comes to mind there, John? Because you've built an amazing career afterwards. I know I look back and wish we'd had you uh, in the big open wheel series at least for a little while because I think you'd still be driving there if possible. But were you, did you get close to anything with, with teams back then and any regrets that that's not how things played out? Um, definitely no regrets. I think, um, you know, I, I guess actually the one regret I have is that um, I had a champ car test lined up and um, we uh, we decided to, to turn it down because it looked like the opportunity, or we could still do the test, but it was going to cost some money. And we decided to save that money for some other, there was a sponsorship money for some other, um, some other endeavors. And um, that didn't really end up panning out exactly the way that we imagined. And so uh, when I look back in hindsight, I could have just done the test and gotten to drive a champ car, which I think was at that time uh, one of the coolest cars that's ever existed. And um, so I have, you know, missed out on driving that for sure, but um, no regrets on not being able to uh, make something happen in IndyCar. Obviously the racing these days is incredible, um, but that's, that's built up. I'm not huge into the, uh, the ovals and the risk you have to take there. Um, I think, I think I would have enjoyed the game, the, the mental part of that, but I don't think that, um, I, I don't think I could have reconciled the risk, uh, very easily in my mind. And so I, I don't have huge regrets about where I ended up. I loved my career. Um, GT cars and, and especially the height of GTLM was exactly where I wanted to be. Um, you know, there was part of me when I first joined BMW that thought my goal and my dream would be DTM and, you know, to move to Europe and be a, a factory BMW driver in DTM. Um, but over the next few years that I joined BMW, I think that GTLM really took off and, and I was really happy being in in the States racing that category. So um, absolutely no regrets with, with how things ended up. And, um, you know, I'll still watch IndyCar races from time to time and, and it's great battles and, you know, would have loved the chance to drive the car, but ultimately I'm really happy with where I had ended up. I love your insanity. Not sure about IndyCar ovals. Granted coming upon a front wheel drive VW Scirocco, that's going a hundred miles an hour slow <laughs> over a blind crest at the Nürburgring, not a problem. Um, yeah, I, I never, I never said it was rational and I never said that, uh, <laughs> that, 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 the rest of the things I was doing were safe. Well, um, fair point. But <laughs> fair point. But but it's uh, you know it's all what what you're willing to risk and and what the payoff is. I think for me the payoff on the ovals is is that you're playing chess at 200 and you know 30 miles an hour, um, whereas the payoff at Nurburgring is is um, for me much more visceral. Oh, no, no, you know getting to getting to push a a GT3 car around there is is unlike any other experience. And and for me, I mean nobody's excited when you see a front wheel drive Scirocco in front of you or, um, or, or any of, uh, any of those slow cars. But for me, what was exciting about the Norch life is that there was, there was no way that you could study to get better at that. Mm. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of work you can put in to do a quality lap, 
um, you know, at Nürburgring, you do the top 30 quality and it's just you in the track at every other track. Um, you know, you're going to have a lot of laps where you don't have traffic, but at Nürburgring in the race, you're never going to have a lap without traffic. And even in qualifying before the top 30, uh, session, you're never going to have a lap without traffic. And so for me, it was the variables that, that made the Nordschleife so enjoyable. And I loved the fact that you just had to figure it out. And that's part of why I loved IMSA racing, especially when GTLM uh, was kind of in the middle because we had the most action. We had the prototypes coming by us and we had to pass the GTB cars because we had a little bit more power, but not a ton. Um, so you had to really plan what you were going to do and make quick decisions and it was all changeable. And so you had, you had a ton of guys who could be really fast in the car um, who couldn't quite figure out the traffic and, and that applied in, in the height of GTLM and it, and it definitely applies at the Nürburgring. So that's, that's the aspect of, of, of those types of races that I really enjoyed. So you are one of a handful of folks who benefited from, he's now IMSA's president, that being John Doonan, but why don't we close on this? So had hoped you would be able to go upwards and open wheel. Didn't happen. One, two Mazda-powered open wheel junior championships in a row. And without that IndyCar destination, Mazda, Dunan and such, made sure your career didn't grind to a halt. It was you and I believe Adam Christodolu, the Newman Walks team. You got into sports car racing Pretty cool thing, blaringly loud, amazing sound <laughs> of a Riley chassis, two frame chassis, Mazda RX-7 carbon bodywork, and triple rotors, I believe, John, um, into Grand Am's Rolex GT class. And you could have seen your career stall, but the fact that Dunan and Mazda wanted to make sure that one of their young champs that they believed in fiercely was able to continue his racing career, albeit in a, in a different series, different format. You talk about that brother, because there's a handful of you who were given that opportunity, uh, to move and do something slightly different, but maintain that upward trajectory. I know that then I was fortunate to see, uh, that and witness that, um, in 2010, but, you tell me about that, because when I think back of the many pivotal things to happen throughout your career, uh, this isn't the only one, but I know this was a big springboard to uh, lead you to where you are today. That was the trigger um, that got me into sports cars. Um, you know, D John, uh, John Doonan and I were having conversations definitely weekly and, and sometimes daily at that point, which is kind of crazy to think about <laughs> back in the time, being, you know, seven, or I guess 18 years old. Um, having conversations with somebody that high up in a, in a corporate company, but, um, you know, he was really, really passionate about what they were doing and what the target was with all of their, um, with all of their ladder series. And so you alluded to it earlier a little bit, but that was a really interesting time in, in open wheel history. And it sort of screwed up the ladder a little bit. And so, um, you know, Mazda had built, had built this little system for guys to come up. And then all of a sudden the top level went away. 
Um, so I won the, the level below that and had nowhere to go. Of course, you know, I didn't, it wasn't like I had a scholarship to go do a full season of champ car, but because everything was changing so fast and teams were trying to figure out how to adapt and buy new cars to go over to IndyCar and get rid of champ cars and what were we going to do with those and where was the money going to come from? It was a really tough time to break in. And so despite winning star Mazda and Atlantic back to back, you know, those were the two levels right below it. So I, in theory, um, you know, had, had, you would hope that you'd have your pick of teams at that point. And that's just not how it works in racing these days. Um, and certainly not at that time with, with all, everything going on. So it was a really tough, tough moment for me to realize it's not just about results. Um, you can win as, you know, you, you spend your whole career thinking you got to win, you got to win. And then you win and you realize, Oh, you got to win and do all this other stuff. You got to either find sponsorship or you got to find, um, you know, some, some way to break in. And so despite having back-to-back championships, I remember the, the best offer I got, um, after my Atlantic championship was, uh, to go to do Indy lights, which essentially was a sidestep. And the offer was, I think for either one or 200 grand. And then I was responsible for my own crash damage. And so, um, or maybe I was responsible for the first hundred of the crash damage or something like that. And I I remember just being astounded on the phone and that, and that no joke was the best offer I found. I mean, I was talking to IndyCar teams and Indy lights teams and, um, you know, despite having such good results, that was the best thing I could find. And I said, look, I'm, I'm 18. My dad put a lot of money into my career coming up and, you know, he's, he's done. He's not putting anything, anything up, nor do we really have that level, uh, to, to put up. And, you know, you're also talking about any lights, which did ovals. And, and so, you know, the, the saying is either there's two types of drivers on an ovals, those who have crashed and those who are going to crash. Um, and you know, a crash in an Indy lights car was an easy 75 grand. So we were looking at it saying it was going to be two or 300 grand to run that year. And then we were going to be back in the same boat the following year. Um, so it just seemed, seemed like the wrong call. And, um, that's actually the moment when I started applying to college, um, and, uh, or, or started planning that process anyway. Um, and so, um, yeah, getting, getting back on, on John and, and Mazda, you know, we were in touch a lot through that year. Um, he was able to get me a seat at the 24 hours of Daytona. So I was actually teammates with Jordan Taylor. Yeah. It's Todd Lamb. I, I think like yeah. Jade Buford maybe. And I feel yeah, like I'm Jade forgetting. and Glenn. There was one other cause we had, Ocino? we had five people. That Something sounds like that. right actually. Yeah. Wow. Um, Racer's yeah, Edge. It's a while. And and, it, and it's it's hard for me to remember because I actually never drove in that race. The car ended up having a problem. I think um, I think Jordan started and Todd got in, and and had a failure. And so um, I ended up leaving around sunset. And uh, that was a really disappointing way to start my first 24. Um, wouldn't be the last time that you, <laughs> you leave a 24-hour disappointed. Um, seems you know if you have a long enough career, you have more of those races than you do the the good ones, but at, at endurance races anyway. So, um, so I did technically enter the race at Daytona that year, um, with, with racers edge. And then they had a couple months off and that gave enough time for John to work his magic and, and 
take the money that um, Chris Adulo had won um, for his his championship, and they ended up reallocating that to sports cars. So we were able to get a little sponsorship money from Mazda to go to Speed Source and run the season at Speed Source, and that was a really fun year. You know, we were, um, you know, we were the new young kids and just flat out all the time, and um, and had some good results. We won at Lime Rock, which was an interesting. Um, interesting race to compete in because it was a one day event. I think it was on a holiday, maybe Memorial day. Um, and so because of, because of Lime Rock not allowing any racing on Sundays, they decided to do the race on Monday and we didn't have any practice cause we couldn't run on Sunday. So we showed up practice in the morning, qualify in the afternoon race late afternoon. And we had a brand new car, um, that I'm pretty sure had, I, don't, I wouldn't call it a shakedown because I, I think the shakedown was really just um, somebody taking the car and driving it around the business park, <laughs> um, which if you imagine <laughs> where Speed Source was based, and if, if you can imagine um, you know, a business park with a three-rotor RX-8 Definitely. blasting down there at full power, <laughs> can only imagine what the rest of the businesses were thinking. Um, so that was the shakedown for the car, and somehow we, we came out with a brand, brand new car with essentially no shakedown and, uh, and one. So that was a really, a really cool event. We had a bunch of other podiums that year. Um, and then, uh, and then again, you know, despite having a good year budget ran out, we didn't have a, a ride for the following year. And, and that's how I ended up finding, um, finding my way to Stevenson and ran the first year. That was the first year I ever got paid was the year after that I, after I ran for Mazda. So, um, you know, so John, John and Mazda definitely, saved my driving career, getting me, getting me to compete, getting to show my stuff. And then a, a year later, um, I was getting paid as a race car driver. I'm looking at a photo I took of you on pit lane about to climb into that, I think number 68 Mazda, I think it was round two at Homestead in 2010. And, uh, you got your Mazda branding, you got your skip barber visor strip. Uh, <laughs> you got the Savage designs logo. And then at the front, You've got a little red sticker with Snoopy on it and a little heart. <laughs> and I forget the name of the bird from Peanuts, but uh, I'm like, that's my guy right there. All yeah, right, man. I didn't do that myself, but that was a driver coach that I'd had uh, <laughs> the previous year in Atlantix. And uh, Mike Zemecki, he stuck that on one Zemecki. race. And I, I can't. I can't remember if we won the race or if we podiumed or something, but I remember thinking that's, that's staying on there now. So, um, I still have that helmet somewhere and, uh, I'm pretty sure the sticker's still on it. Good old Mr. Slide rule. Ah, <laughs> that's so awesome. Well, brother, I'm so happy for you. I don't know if you've been recognized yet by anyone who, who you've flown, uh, sports car fans aren't as populous as we'd hope but um i you got to prepare for how you'll deal with that at some point in time but uh yeah i'm sure i'll be i'm sure i'll be fighting them off yes um, exactly <laughs> well congratulations sure it's gonna be a problem i seriously hope uh, i get to see you at the racetrack before too long because you got too dang much talent for folks not to uh to give you a ring but congratulations on the new career my friend and onwards and upwards from here well, I appreciate it. And thanks so much for having me on a second time. Hey, great talk. right. 